are studying a new series, and the series is on. Can I have a drum roll, please? All right. It's on the book of Acts, believe it or not. So this is a... Uh, and now this is, I'm sure there's a lot of emotional uh, reactions when I throw the name of that book out. And, and there, well, there was for me too, actually. David Adams had suggested this. And some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about, but others will know exactly what I'm talking about here. This, for many of us from Church of Christ or International Church of Christ, ICOC backgrounds, uh, I would say, that, let's just say that there was, a, uh, there was a rather strong emphasis on the book of Acts to the point of maybe beating it to death. So it was, it was studied a lot. And it's, it's a... It's a it's a favorite book in the churches of Christ, and I think one of the main reasons is because you know Acts two thirty eight is in there, and I, whenever I go in, in the, I'd be teaching in different countries, different churches, and I, wherever I went, I say, "What are the two? Just a random question. What are the two verses of the Bible that get quoted the most in this church?" And everywhere I went, it would be the same two verses. It was Acts two thirty eight. And Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Wherever I went, this was the culture of the church. So it's big emphasis on evangelism and the book of Acts to the point where, after coming out of that church, this was the last book in the Bible I wanted to teach because there had been so much teaching on it. So David finally prevailed on me after several years to uh, to, 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 to dig into this book. So my, my desire for those who came from a background similar to mine is to, is to take a fresh new look at the book to reclaim it. And I think with things that we have studied over the last several years from the Old Testament, Kingdom of God, angels, all kinds of things, that all of that will really serve us well to see some wonderful new things in the book that were, were not covered when we, when we studied it many times in the past. And the other thing about the book of Acts, I think the reason why the church I was in studied so much is because the church was really focused on evangelism, spreading the gospel to all nations, planting churches. And so the book of Acts is an obvious choice as an inspiration as you see the gospel going out to other countries and to, and to, to, to new lands. So, that's right. That's exactly right. So Acts picks up where, where Jesus left off. Uh, and there are a few things I want to take a look at as we're going through the book of Acts this time and ask you, hopefully you're reading on your own, you get a whole lot more out of this if you're reading reading at the same time uh, that we're teaching and thinking about it, wrestling with it. And one of the things I want to take a look at is not just that the gospel spread, but what was the message that was preached to unbelievers? How, how did they convince people who didn't believe in Jesus to believe in him? And how did they reach different types of people, the Jews, the Gentiles, the, the, the influential, the nobodies, the philosophically minded people in Athens, all different types of people? How did they, what, what was the message that they presented? The other thing, is and we're, we're a fellowship of churches that really emphasize evangelism. I would say the Holy Spirit was not emphasized very much, not much teaching on the Holy Spirit. It was mostly uh, kind of here's what the Holy Spirit doesn't do as a reaction to, to Pentecostalism. And uh, so I really want to open your eyes to how much the Holy Spirit is mentioned throughout the book of Acts, the significance of the Holy Spirit to see, for us to have a deeper appreciation of, of who the Holy Spirit is, what the Spirit does, and, and also to get a picture of what was the church like in the beginning. What was the heart of the church, the character of the church, the lifestyle of the church, and 
And how did the Christians respond when persecution came up? And also to to appreciate how do they respond when uh, how do they respond when persecution came up? How do they respond uh, when there weren't times of persecution? The Book of Acts is really helpful for me to get a framework for the letters of the New Testament because when I see the gospel going to different parts of the world, going to Corinth and Ephesus, then I see later on there there are letters written to these churches. So the 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 book of Acts is focused primarily on the spread of the gospel to the west going into Turkey, which is referred to as, as, as Asia or Asia Minor, and then on into the Roman Empire to the west. That's the main focus is kind of the, the northern and western spread of the gospel around the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea going into the Roman Empire. So, uh, And that's primarily because most of the book of Acts, especially the second half of it, is focused on the work that Paul did. Now, the gospel, the gospel went out in all different directions. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but it was really focused on that. So one of the things, there are a lot of, a lot of myths and conceptions about, the, about Christianity that I try to question myself and dispel some of them, and I would encourage uh, others to, to, to question them as well. One is that Christianity... The Christian faith is a Western religion. Christianity today is associated with Europe, America, and the West. And actually, a side interest of mine is the spread of the gospel into other lands. The spread of the gospel into Africa, the spread of the gospel into Asia, early on in the church's history. And I think one of the reasons people can think of the Christian faith as a Western religion is because today... Uh, there are a lot of Christians in the West, in the Western world. And another reason is because when you're reading in the New Testament, because there's so much emphasis on Paul and on his work, that a lot of people get the idea, and we open most Bibles, and in the back, there's maybe there, in some of the study Bibles, there'll be a map of the spread of the gospel, and usually it's the Mediterranean Sea and a little band around the Mediterranean Sea. But actually... And in this book, we're not also introduced to another bad guy in the Bible. Okay, well, yeah, we, we'll, we'll be introduced to all kinds of interesting Simon characters. That's right, that's right. Simon the Sorcerer, he's a, he's a, a really interesting bad guy, absolutely. But uh, so we'll see. Um, that, so, so although the book of Acts is focused on Paul's work and the spread of the gospel to the north and to the west, that the Christian faith spread very early on to the east. It spread into places like India, and it spread from Antioch into the interior, into places like Persia and the Parthian Empire. So, uh, and we'll touch on that a little bit, even in Acts chapter 2, to see the spread of the gospel going outside and beyond the Roman Empire. But I don't want to leave the, the impression that Christianity is a Western or European-based religion. And I was reading something in the year 800. If, if someone was going to place bets as, as to whether Christianity would flourish in Europe, Asia, or Africa first, in the year 800, that most of the betting would not have been on Europe. That it, it look, was looking a lot more promising in Africa and Asia, but the, 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 the unusual things that happen in history, that's just kind of the way, the way things worked out where we are right now, but that could change. It has changed in the past. So, uh, 
So Paul was important, but Paul was not one of the 12 apostles. And in the book of Revelation, where it talks about the great city, it says that the foundation is the, the 12, it's built on 12 foundations, which are the 12 apostles. And that's not Paul. So, so the, I want to have the idea that 12 apostles were commissioned with spreading the gospel to the whole world. They went in all different directions. And Paul was a great apostle, but he wasn't one of the 12. And, and, and I don't take anything away from putting the 12 in, in the first place as the, as the primary apostle. So uh, Acts is written by Luke, who was a traveling companion of Paul. And it starts off, let's read Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up after through the holy after he through the holy spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of god and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard me from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times nor seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witness to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this is the introduction to the book of Acts. And I notice it says, my former account, O Theophilus. So this is written to someone called Theophilus. And Theophilus, it's a... It, it's, a, it's a Greek name. It just means lover of God. So question, is he writing to, to an, in, a person whose name is Theophilus, or is he using a literary device and just referring, is writing this to anyone who is a lover of God? You can take it either way, but if you want to take it the second way, if you're a lover of God, you can take this book perhaps a, more, a little more personally. So he, he's, he talks about his former account, and so the former account is the Gospel of Luke. And really, this is volume two of Luke's stories. I believe that there's more in the New Testament by Luke than by any other writer, and that includes Paul. So more, there's more text here from Luke. So Luke is the author of, of, of uh, both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And you think about the book of the Gospel of Luke starts with the birth, the conception, and the birth of John the Baptist, birth of Jesus, and it ends with the, uh, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So that's a period of about 30 years. And then the book of Acts covers from where that leaves off. There's a little bit of overlap. And it covers roughly the next 30 years or so from the time that Jesus ascends to heaven until Paul ends up in prison in Rome spreading the gospel there. So it's, it's uh, you know, first, first 30 years or so, second 30 years or so, roughly speaking. Um, so let's look at the introduction to the Gospel of Luke to see the connection between these two works. 
Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. And as much as many have taken to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word del- delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And one of the lines in here, I wasn't sure what that meant, so I looked at it in another, another translation where it says, um, uh, having perfect understanding of all things from the very first in the, in the ESV, in uh, uh, Luke 1 3, it says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So, this, that's the idea. The, Luke has, has studied these things out for himself. He's dug into it. And again, this is addressed to Theophilus, love, uh, the name meaning lover of God. And I, I found it interesting here in looking at this. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of these things. So at the time Luke is writing, he's saying he's not the first. There have been other people trying to write down accounts of these things that have happened in the past, and that he investigated them accurately, thoroughly, and completely to give an accurate account of what actually happened. So who was Luke? What do we know about him? We encountered him in Philemon and in uh, Colossians. He was mentioned in both of those places. In Philemon, verse 24, and 2 Timothy 4.11, we know he is a Christian who accompanied the Apostle Paul on his work to spread the gospel. In Colossians 4.14, there's a, there's a, a delightful reference. He res- Paul describes him as Luke the beloved physician. So he's he's a, a very nice thing that he said there. Uh, this is from Eusebius, writing around the year 320. Eusebius is a church historian. He had access to a lot of earlier earlier material, so I'm interested in what he has to say about this. So he's, he's talking about Luke here, and uh, this is from Ecclesiastical History. He said, but Luke, who was born at Antioch, and by profession a physician, being for the most part connected with Paul and familiar acquainted with the rest of the apostles, has left us two inspired books, the institutes of that spiritual healing art which he obtained from them. This is a play on words about the physician healer. One of these is his gospel in which he testifies that he recorded as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to him. The other is Acts of the Apostles, which he composed not from what he heard from others, but from what he had seen himself. So, so Luke, uh, in, in, in Luke, he's investigating from other people and writing it down. In the book of Acts, I'm assuming he's referring to this, the second half of the book particularly, he's, he's saying he, these are things he lived out and he saw himself. So that's the perspective. Uh, and a little further on in, um, in the same work, it says, this is in Ecclesiastical History, Book 3, Chapter 4. I, find, I thought it kind of interesting. He said, it is also said that Paul usually referred to his gospel whenever in his epistles he spoke of some particular gospel as his own, saying, according to my gospel. So this is so Luke is a companion of Paul, and Eusebius says, a lot of people believe at his time, when Paul is saying, according to my gospel, he's referring to the gospel of Luke, Luke being his, his traveling companion. So, so that's just, just a, 
Uh, yeah, just throw that out there. Now, I'm reading a, a book recently. A friend sent it to me. I think I referred to this before. It's uh, called Zealot by. Uh, it's it's a it's a basically it's it's a critique of the Christian faith. And my friend read it. He was a little bit rattled by it, so he bought a copy and had it mailed to me. And he said, "Chuck, I want you to read this book and demolish it for me." So he his faith is not really strong, but he's a Christian. So I, you know, I, I got the book, opened it up from, from Amazon, and started leafing through the few, first few pages in the, in the introduction. And I read, I read just one or two pages, and the steam starts coming out of my ears. Because, because he's the, the writer, he, he doesn't footnote anything, and he's making a number of statements of things which are just plain, factually correct, incorrect. Okay? You're entitled to your own opinions and conclusions. You're not entitled to your own facts. Okay? So, so he's, he just he didn't do his homework. He's making a number of statements that are, that are easy to show. And I'm reading through this, and I'm seeing multiple incorrect, uh, just false statements on, on single pages. The guy didn't do his homework, hasn't gone back to the primary sources. And so I'm thinking, you know, where do I begin? I have to practically write an entirely different book to refute everything he's saying here. Uh, which I, I'm not planning to do that. So, uh, uh, and one of the things that I notice is he's picking up a lot of what I would call I don't know uh, 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 liberal critics of the scriptures. Okay, the, the term liberal can mean anything. So, I, you know, but but I mean in the sense of people who don't take the Bible as the inspired word of God. They study the word of God and they pick it apart. Basically, a lot of there's a whole cottage industry of scholars who will who will try to dissect the Bible and say, you know, this person didn't write this and that person didn't write that. And, and uh, so he's obviously was reading a lot of this stuff. And in and, and, and those circles, one of the things I hear people say is, you know, there were lots of Gospels out there, but the church, maybe it's the Catholic Church of the 300s, the story may vary, but basically hundreds of years later, there were all these different go- versions of the Gospel out there and, and the church leaders got together and they threw out all the ones they didn't like that didn't agree with their agenda and they just settled on four at the end, okay? So, and, and this is usually they did it sometime in the 300s. Um, so, how many Gospels were written? That's, that's interesting to me. Luke says many have undertaken to, to draw up an account of these things. Uh, that there were, obviously, even at the time he was writing, there were other fragments at least of accounts of Jesus that were floating around. So how do you answer this question? And I thought, you know, a really good person to ask about this would be Irenaeus, an early Christian. I'll tell you why. He grew up in the East, in in Asia Minor, and as a child he learned at the feet of Polycarp, who was a bishop of Smyrna, and Polycarp is interesting because he actually knew the apostles and he knew people firsthand. He lived to be a very old age. He learned people from, from, from his youth who actually knew Jesus personally before he was crucified. So he, 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 had, he had opportunity to learn firsthand from the very foundation of the Christian faith. So Irenaeus learned from Polycarp. So he's one link removed here. So he's writing in the year 180. Now remember the Apostle John probably died a year, somewhere around the year uh, 100 or so, 90, 100, somewhere. There. So Irenaeus is writing around the year 180. So he's an older man, but he's writing, he, but he had studied under in his youth uh, uh, Polycarp, who was an old man. And, and here's what he says about Polycarp. He says, uh, this is written around the year 180. He says, Polycarp 
also not o- was not only instructed by the apostles and conversed with many who had seen Christ, but was also by apostles in Asia appointed bishop of the church in Smyrna, whom I also saw in my early youth. For he tarried on earth a very long time, and when a very old man gloriously and most nobly suffered martyrdom, departing his life, having always taught the things which he learned from the apostles, and which the church has handed down, and which alone are true. So you think about that. So Irenaeus is one link removed from the apostles, and from people who personally knew Jesus, and he says Polycarp not only knew the apostles, but they appointed him bishop of Smyrna. So I say, this is a, this is a good guy to ask about, well, how many Gospels were there, right? Uh, so he gives an account of the Gospels, and this, this really helps me to, to, to view the faith as it was viewed in the beginning. So he, he starts off, he says, We've learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the Gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public, and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. For it's unlawful to assert they preach before they possess perfect knowledge, perfect meaning complete, as some do even venture to say, boasting themselves as improvers on the apostles. For after our Lord rose from the dead, the apostles were invested with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came down upon them and were filled with all his gifts, and had perfect knowledge. They departed to the ends of the earth, preaching glad tidings of the good things sent from God to us, and proclaimed the peace of heavens to men, who indeed do all equally and individually possess the gospel of God. Now he goes on to the gospel that, 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 was, that was spread by the apostles. He says, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundation of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke, also the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple Lord, who also had learned leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So did you count the number of Gospels that we have there? I counted four, all right? So he says Matthew was first, not Mark, not Q. Okay, so Matthew was first, and then came Mark and Luke, and John was last. He says there are four Gospels. So he, he makes, the, uh, makes that point, and he says the apostles didn't write these things down until, until the point where they had complete knowledge that had been given to them by the Holy Spirit, they had the complete fat package of the faith. And he, so he's basically saying, this is all called a work called Against Heresies. It's in uh, uh, Book 3, Chapter 1 in Anicene Fathers, Volume 1, page uh, 414. I'll put all the references in, in the notes that we post uh, online. And he says, anybody, the, the apostles didn't, didn't proclaim the faith until they had complete knowledge. And he says, anybody who thinks that they can improve on what the apostles gave us, that they have more knowledge than what the apostles had, the person is a heretic right off the bat because they had perfect knowledge, they handed down to us, and the idea is that we just preserve the faith that was originally handed down by the apostles. So later on in the same book, in book three of Against Heresies, he goes on to explain that the heresies of his day 
generally fall into one of two categories. I thought, that's amazing. The heresies today fall into the same two categories. Category one is those who think there's more than what the apostles left behind, and they want to add new things. So they'll have new books that they want to add in, or they'll have special prophets that are revealing new things to them. So that's one whole category, is the people who wanted to add to what the apostles, the apostles didn't give us enough, we've got new revelation uh, to consider. And the other group, as you can probably guess, is those who wanted to take away from the scriptures. In particular, this was the, the like the followers of Marcion who gutted uh, uh, most of the Old Testament and the New Testament. They just picked out certain books. Now, people may not do that in quite the blatant way that Marcion did back then, but that's basically what people do when they'll say, you know, this statement of Paul doesn't apply. You know, we're gonna let's 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 forget what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Corinthians 14 or this teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and they just basically negate certain statements in the scriptures. So people are either adding something to the scripture or they're or they're taking something out. And you're gonna say it says no, the apostles had complete knowledge, they had the whole package, we just embrace what they gave us, add nothing to it and take nothing away from it. And then he re-emphasizes the point, there were four Gospels, not five, not three. And this was God's plan from the beginning. He makes an emphatic statement here in, in the same work. He says, it is not possible. The Gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. For since there are four zones in the world in which we live, Four principal winds, you know, north, south, east, west. The church is scattered throughout the world, and the pillar and ground of the church is the gospel and the spirit of life. It's fitting that she should have four pillars, breathing out immortality on every side and giving life to men afresh. From which fact it's evident that the word, the craftsman of all, he who is enthroned upon the cherubim and contains all things, he who is manifested to men, has given us the gospel under four aspects, but bound together by one spirit. And then he goes on here, and I thought it's pretty cool. The, 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 you remember the cherubim, the, 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 the living creatures before the throne is talked about in the book of Revelation chapter 4 and Ezekiel chapter 1. And how many faces did they have? They had four. Okay, they had one was like an eagle, one like a human. One like uh, like an ox, or, or a, uh, and then one like one like a lion. So the four different faces, and then he goes on. He explains. He he identifies uh, one of the gospels for for his own reasons with each of those. He said this is God's plan from the beginning. Four gospels. So the idea that it was in the three hundreds that people got together later on and and weeded it down to four. This is, this is someone who learned from Polycarp, who knew the apostles, who said, no, there are only four Gospels. That was God's plan from the beginning. There will be no more than that, and you can't take any of them out either. All right? So Luke's is one of the Gospels. And just another, I'll throw another aside out here to anybody who tells you that there's, there's more Gospels out there. What about the Gospel of Thomas? What about the Gospel of this? The Gnostic Gospel or something else? Uh, even earlier, around the year 160, Tatian, a, a Christian writer, he took together, he took the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he put together a chronological Gospel, which is pretty cool. I mean, he took all, because you wonder, well, how does this fit together with that? And Tatian took the four Gospels, and he pieced them together, 
that are quotes, it's basically just quotes from the four Gospels, but arranged in, in what he thought were chronological order, and actually it makes quite a bit of sense. So he's writing around the year 160, and he's quoting from all four Gospels, and it's called the Diatessaron, and we have uh, at, least, at least a couple of Greek students here, and the word tessera means four. In the Greek four, Diatessaron means through the four. So that was the, that the so even at the year 160, it's everybody people understood there's only there's four gospels there's only four legitimate authentic gospels inspired by the holy spirit and um uh, since the diatessaron was used in the the syriac speaking part of the world for for quite a period of time and actually uh, somebody that we many of us know nick zola who was uh, an engineering student years ago before he departed engineering to study to get a phd in bible and he's actually a a, a, a scholar on tation of the diatessaron so uh, four Gospels, Luke is one of them, only four, no more, no less, don't let anybody tell you otherwise, and Luke is the, the author of uh, Luke's Gospel and also Acts. So as I mentioned, he pointed back in the beginning of Acts, he's pointing back to things that he uh, had explained at the end of Volume 1, at the end of Gospel of Luke. So to me, the best introduction to Acts is the end of Luke, because that's that that's really sets the stage for everything that follows. I want to. This is an introductory, uh, uh, and we're going to look at introduction in the first few verses here. So, uh, we read from Acts chapter one, the first eight verses uh, a few minutes ago, and it's basically recounting things that were discussed in Luke twenty-four. It recounts about Jesus after his resurrection. He appeared to the apostles and he showed many convincing proofs that he was physically resurrected from the dead. It recounts how he taught the apostles more things about the kingdom of God, about how he gave them instruction to wait in Jerusalem for something that was for the promise to be fulfilled. And it also recounted how he would have them go out to the ends of the earth. So we'll start in Jerusalem and go out from there to the ends of the earth. They all point, all these things, they all point back to what Luke had previously mentioned in Luke 24. So to me, Luke 23 and 24 sets up the book of Acts. So I want to, before we get too far in the book of Acts, I just want get, to get us grounded in what was laid out there. Luke 23, we have the uh, crucifixion and the death of, of Jesus. It goes into the details about how uh, Joseph of Arimathea put, put his body in the tomb and how this happened on the day of preparation that he died and he was put in, in the tomb and then the body was left alone on the Sabbath and then on the first day of the week rose from the dead. Let's read about that. Luke 24 in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, 
Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. He departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So it says a little, little later on, Luke 24, that those, the two men in shining clothes, no surprise, they're angels. Uh, they're identified as the, the two men on, on the road to Emmaus are talking to Jesus. That, that there's, a, there's a tale about the women uh, uh, saw angels there who said he'd risen. So one of the things I'm particularly excited about in, in this lesson is that we have a few people in the room who are teenagers. Okay? Because, I'll tell you why. Because you all, now you may be here because your parents dragged you here and you had no choice. Or you may be here because you're really curious and interested. Or I don't know. But, or maybe some combination. It may vary from week to week. I don't know. But, but uh, uh, I was a teenager once myself, believe it or not. And, and uh, I had to wrestle with these questions as well. Is, okay, how do I know this is true or not? How do I know this is true? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole Christian faith is summarized by Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And after that was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that was seen by over five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So Paul summarizes the gospel. He says, this is the gospel I preached. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That means in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He was buried. These are both covered in Luke 23. He rose on the third day in fulfillment of the prophecies. That's Luke 24. So basically, that's the gospel right there. That's the foundation of the gospel. Uh, and he says that there are two reasons here to believe this is true. One is, he died for our sins according to the scriptures in fulfillment of the prophecies and rose according to the scriptures. So one is the prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies written hundreds of years beforehand. And the second thing was eyewitnesses. These are people who went to their death. Some of them were tortured to death. And they went to the ends of the world to preach the gospel, that these things really were true and they really were happening. They paid the ultimate price for this with absolutely nothing to gain. So he says, this is the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in fulfillment of scriptures and, and attested to by reliable eyewitness accounts. So, uh, how do we know? This is a question I asked as a teenager. I asked again in my 20s, particularly, and at the time I didn't have a good answer. Okay, How do I know? I, mean, I was raised a Christian. My parents believed it. I went to Catholic school. I was taught this. Most of the people I knew believed it. But I thought, how do I know this is true? If I grew up in a Muslim family, I'd probably believe, believe that Muhammad was, uh, was a prophet of God. If I grew up in a Mormon family, if I grew up in an atheist family, I'd probably believe whatever my parents passed on to me, most likely, so this is not a good enough reason for me to become a Christian, just the fact that I was raised that way, 
and, and, and the teachings sound nice, but the foundation of the faith is, I mean, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Either it happened or it didn't happen. And uh, in, the, in my own case, I reached a point in my 20s where I said, I'm not sure this is true. And either I didn't have anybody to provide an answer for me or I didn't know they were there. And I basically drifted away from the Christian faith and was, a, was a, an agnostic for years until I ran into some Christians who actually could answer my questions and they challenged me. And I, I took another look at the scriptures. And when I did... After reading through the, 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 the Gospels, it all came down to what Paul says right here. That Jesus, either he rose from the dead or he didn't in fulfillment of the prophecies seen by the eyewitnesses. The whole faith hung on that. The rest was details, okay? Specifically what he wanted. If he's the son of God, whatever he says goes. If this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit and God rose him from the dead, then then, uh, you know, that's it. That's, you know, in, che- in chess, that's checkmate, all right? That's that, you're done. It doesn't matter how many pieces you lose. You lose that one, it's all over. It's checkmate, right? And use another metaphor. This one's for all the marbles, okay? This is basically, this is everything. So I realized early on, and I had to wrestle with this question, are the scriptures reliable, number one? And number two, did Jesus rise from the dead on the third day? Was he killed and did he rise from the dead? So I had to to wrestle with this myself. Obviously, I came to the conclusion that uh, I was convinced, looking at the evidence, yes, he did. So I I, uh, ended up getting baptized, and uh, so I've been here ever since as a Christian. And I think what Paul said, he said, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. So Paul said the same way. He said, if, if this didn't really happen, then we're all fools. We're all idiots, and our faith is completely futile and, and useless. So it's the question of whether it's true or not. We, uh, Alice and I had, uh, we had a couple over for, I won't mention the names, would be, <laughs> we had a couple over for dinner recently. And uh, so we were, the, the, we had, we had, let's just say we had a wide-ranging discussion, and uh, the, uh, we're talking about what's going on in the world right now, and, and it, was, it was a married couple, and, and the wife was, was really into conspiracy theories, okay? And, and so she was, throwing some, some, she was throwing some pretty wild ones out there on the table. So, you know, we're, we're the host. I want to be respectful and everything. And uh, uh, so I'm thinking, you know, what, what do I do here? I said, well, okay. Um, I said, I'm going to take that one, and I'm going to put it on the shelf and see how it ages, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to say you're wrong. You know, there have been things in the past that I heard that sounded really wild and crazy, but then later on, they actually proved to be true. So I'm saying, you know, I'm not saying you're, you're you know, I'm, I'm super, I'm a skeptic anyway. I said, I'm super skeptical. I'm just going to park that one on the shelf. And I said, the other thing I want to know is that the source that you got this from, is this a reliable source? And I'll tell you what reliable means to me. That they've called things out in the past that have proven to be true. Okay, that's what I want to know. Okay, what's the track record? If you want to tell me in advance that something is going to happen, and then it actually happens as you said that it would happen, then you have you have some credibility in, in my in my mind. But if but if you say things that are going to happen, they don't happen, then you don't have any credibility. That's that's why I looked at it, and. Uh, um, 
So that one, that one's still on the shelf. I think it's going to be there for a while. But, but and, and looking at these claims that Jesus rose from the dead, I want evidence, and I want reliable evidence from people I can trust. And and uh, so so I think that's that's the the, uh, the the benefit of the prophecies and looking at the Book of Acts and seeing the sacrifices that people made to spread the faith that this really did happen. Uh, another thing I want to consider here. Uh, which is um, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for everything. But when I'm, when I'm, I'm, if I'm sharing my faith with somebody, at some point in time after we've been studying the Bible, I ask the question, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? And if the person says yes, my follow-up question is, hold on here. Let me explain. When I say he rose from the dead, what I mean when I say that, okay? I don't mean spiritually he rose from the dead. I'm talking about body out of the tomb, okay? Uh, I'm talking about flesh and bones. I'm talking about, in, in, in John chapter 20, in the story, to the story of the doubting Thomas, put your fingers in my hands. Put your hand into my side and see that I am, it's, it's a physical body, that Jesus' physical body came out of the tomb. And sometimes people's reaction is, whoa, I, didn't, I wasn't quite sure. That's, that's what you were talking about when you talked about the resurrection of Jesus. But that's what it's talking about here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, sorry, in, uh, in Luke 24. And this is actually a really important foundation, foundational Christian teaching. You say, say, well, what difference does it make? Actually, it makes a, makes a, makes a huge difference uh, to see the physical resurrection of the body of Jesus out of the grave. The tomb was empty. And uh, in Luke 24... But Jesus appears to the apostles at Luke 24, verse 36. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. So they think think it must be a ghost. Looks like Jesus. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still didn't believe for joy and marvel, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took and ate in their presence. Okay, so he's he's saying, it's me, it's the body, okay? Uh, so when I'm talking about Jesus being resurrected from the dead, I'm talking physical resurrection. Now, moving on from there, Jesus said in John 5, an hour is coming, John 5, 28 and 29, when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Okay. Now I thought for a long time when you die, you know you die. They bury, they put the bury, they put the body in the ground, and they have a little little ceremony. But your spirit goes. Your spirit, doesn't your spirit just go up to heaven? 
So no, Jesus just said, said that's not the case. The time comes when all who are in their graves, what's in the grave? It's the body will hear his voice and come forth, and then there will be judgment. So there will be a, a day of final judgment. The dead will be physically raised just as he was. Um, now think about the teachings of Jesus like in the Sermon on Mount Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's more profitable that you should, one of your members should perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Okay, So we're judged body and we will be resurrected as he was physically and we will be uh, for you know, uh, we will be judged and cast into uh, eternal darkness if, if we're if we're not righteous. Our whole body will be as well. Hebrews six it talks about the six foundational teachings of the faith: faith, repentance, and baptism are the first three. But uh, one of the last three is uh, is uh, the the resurrection of the dead. This is considered a basic Christian teaching: is that we will be bodily raised at the end. 1 Corinthians 15, the entire chapter is devoted to the, the teaching of the physical resurrection of the dead. And the Apostles' Creed, before somebody got baptized in, in, in the church long ago, this is basically a baptismal creed. I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that you believe in, was considered foundational, is I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So somehow I had lost this, and actually it was reading early Christians that I stumbled on this. Several of them are talking about the resurrection of the body. I'm reading this and thinking, what are you talking about? I go back and look at the scriptures, and it's everywhere. And I also, I think about the description, thinking about Jesus physically raised from the dead. Colossians 1.18 and Revelation, and Revelation 1 also, Jesus is described as the firstborn from among the dead. So he's the first one to come out of the grave, but we also will as well. If we become like him, we will follow him. So somehow I missed that. Uh, Dave Berceau has a whole lesson on what on uh, the uh, what early Christians believe about life after death on the school publishing. I think it's, it's available free on the YouTube channel. Uh, Luke 24. So Jesus, after he rose from the dead, Though the two on the road to Emmaus are traveling, in verse 13, Behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. They talked together of all the things that had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went to them, but their eyes were restrained, so they didn't know him. So this is after Jesus rose from the dead, before he appears to the apostles or anybody else. Verse 17, And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which happened here in these days? And they said to him, What things? So they said, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping he was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they didn't see. So, so here it is. They're, they're discouraged. They're dejected. We, 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 he was a great prophet. Our leaders killed him. We hoped that he was going to be the one to restore the kingdom. 
and to deliver us. And uh, so they're, but they're, but and they hear this rumor about about the women. They aren't, aren't sure what, quite what to do with this. And, and I love the part that follows here, verse twenty-five. Then he said to them, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the things the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then enter into his glory?" And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near the village where they were going, and he indicated he would have gone further, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. He went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them. He took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. So even though he had a physical body, somehow he could, he could vanish. Okay. Verse 32. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And I love that passage. So even before Jesus revealed himself, he basically, he rebukes them for the lack of, t- of faith. He runs the table with the prophecies, explaining from Moses and the prophets, look, the Christ had to suffer and then rise from the dead. You know, the, what the women was telling you was absolutely true. You should have known that. He rebuking them for not knowing the scriptures. And, uh, and, and when he was running through the scriptures, it said, didn't our hearts burn within us? It's such a beautiful picture. I think... You know, when we hear the prophecies about Jesus that he fulfilled, I mean, that's kind of how I feel. I feel like my heart's burning inside of me. This is exciting. This is powerful. This is deep. This is true. And uh, so they were, they were deeply moved by this. And, and then they run and they tell the apostles, and he appears to the apostles. As we just read the passage where he says, look, it's really me. He gives, he gives convincing proofs. It's really my body. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. It's, it's really me. It's my body. Verse 44, then he said to them, to the, he's talking to the, to the apostles, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Now Jesus had told them that in the past. He told them that in Galilee. He told them that in, in Luke 18. He said all the things that the prophets have written have to be fulfilled about my suffering and resurrection. Verse 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, that repentance and remission of sins be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. For you, for, uh, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you've been endued with power from on high. This is the intro to... Acts chapter 1, right here. So uh, Jesus says to the apostles all the things that were written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first five books, and the prophets and the Psalms, all, all the major, major sections of Scripture had to be fulfilled. He opened their mind. So he explained it to the apostles. And uh, he said, it's, it does, it's written, it's necessary for the Christ to, rise, to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So, now, there's something in here that's deeply frustrating to me. It frustrated me for years to no end. Okay, Jesus, in, in Luke 24, Jesus is giving on the two on the road to Emmaus and then to the, to the apostles, is giving the greatest lesson 
in the old town, the Old Testament prophecies in the history of the world. Okay, this is it, hands down. This is the greatest lesson. The Son of God finally is explaining all the prophecies and how he had fulfilled it. And I've been teaching the Old Testament for years. I'm looking at this, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at this, there's only one problem. He doesn't mention any of the prophecies here. He opens their minds so they can understand the scriptures. What about me? I want to know. Okay, all right, there are prophecies about him suffering. Well, okay, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, you know, what else? But rising from the dead? Where are the prophecies about that? He says that the scriptures are full of prophecies about these things. So I'd go off in the woods, and, and, and I'd pray. Years ago, I'd pray, God, why, why couldn't I have been in the room there? That was the greatest lesson of all time, and it's lost. We don't have it. And uh, I prayed this for a long time. And uh, you think, you know, Chuck, what are you expecting? Golden plates to come down from heaven with an explanation? Are you going to get a, get a, get a tape? What, what are you praying for this for? I, I, you know, there are lots of prayers that go up to heaven. And, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in Sirach, it talks about one of the angels says, I'm, you know, I'm one of the seven angels that delivers the prayers, prayers to God. I don't know if that's true or not, but the angels are somehow involved in prayer, okay? Uh, from, based on what it says in 1 Corinthians, 11, 1 Corinthians 11, I certainly assume that. So I'm praying this prayer, and I don't know what God is thinking about this. You know, boy, I haven't heard that one in a long time. I hear a lot of prayers for parking spaces and for my kids to become Christians and things like that. But this guy wants, this guy's asking to hear a lesson that was given 2,000 years ago. This is an odd one, and he doesn't seem to be giving up. He doesn't get the idea that he's not going to get that. But I prayed for this for a long time, and I thought, you know, I'm going to have to, I'm just not going to give up on this. And I thought, how do I get my? How do I get in the room where the, that lesson was given? What do I do? And I thought, well, do I know anybody in the room that might be able to slip me some some notes here? And I thought, Peter was there. Peter was in the room. He heard what Jesus said, and so that drove me into studying all of Peter's writings, particularly in Acts chapter one, two, three, ten. It's like, okay. Jesus told the apostles how he fulfilled the prophecies. I'm going to have to dig this one out myself. So I just attacked the book of Acts and took apart everything that, that, that Peter is quoting and, and, and just started studying this stuff intensively. And I learned a lot over the period of several years. And we're going to be getting into some of that as we, as we go through this lesson. I, I learned a ton because I wouldn't give up. And then I also... You know, other things happened too where I, I, I started reading the early Christians and some of the great great early Christian apologists that were explaining things from the Old Testament that I had never heard before, never seen before. And so I'm looking forward to, to sharing those things as we go through this. And I'll end with one, uh, one final point here in Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> So keep your eye open for prophecies and for clues about what Jesus explained about fulfilling. Because we're going we're gonna to see this all over the place in the book of Acts. Open your eyes up. Uh, what, when Jesus was around for 40 days after the resurrection, what's he talking about? What's he talking to the apostles about? Okay. In, in verse 3, it says, 
He presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What was the subject of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels? Overwhelmingly, the kingdom of God. What were the parables about the kingdom of God? What's Jesus talking about? Before he's resurrected, after he's resurrected, before he sends to heaven, he's talking to the apostles about the kingdom of God. You think the kingdom of God is pretty important? I think so. The last verses. Let's turn. Let's turn to Acts twenty-eight. So Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. Paul got the memo. Acts twenty-eight, the end of the book of Acts, verse thirty. Paul's in, in, in prison. Uh, he's uh, in prison in a, a rented house in, in, in Rome. Acts 28.30, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So that's what Paul's preaching. Acts chapter 20, when Paul gives his farewell to the Ephesian elders, he says, I was, I was preaching to you day and night and warning you, and I told you all the things about the kingdom of God. That's what Paul preached where he went. That's what Jesus told the apostles to preach. Matthew 24, verse 14, before Jesus died, he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. That's the gospel. The gospel is the kingdom of God. Okay? What does that mean? We're gonna, we're gonna. It's, a, it's fulfillment of pro, many prophecies about the kingdom. We'll see some of those, but it's a real kingdom with a real king, real subjects, and real laws. And uh, that this is the message of the kingdom. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful message that runs throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we'll see that also as we get further on into the book of Acts. So we'll stop there. That's the introduction to the book. So I, I hope that uh, you're, you're looking forward to learning more about, about the faith and how it was spread in the beginning. Amen. Okay.